Today's sermon will be a little bit different. It will be more topical and less exegetical, so you need to know that at the very beginning. But we will still see how God's law exposes us as sinners, and we will still see how the gospel delivers us, but we will be doing it as we hover over once again Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 and as we discuss some church history. I love church history, so it's hard for me to pass up an opportunity to look at how the early church wrestled with who Jesus was, especially since we will be looking at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 again. In fact, we'll probably spend one more week on this verse and one more week looking at some events that happened in the early church in the fourth century. So that's kind of where we're headed, but let's pray one more time before we begin. Father, you are so merciful and so gracious and so kind and so generous and so loving, and we turn away from you all the time. I don't know how you're able to keep loving us, but you are, because it's who you are. It's what you've been doing for all of eternity. Loving your son and having your son Jesus love you in return in and through the spirit. And because of that, you're able to love sinners like us. And we just say thank you this morning. And we ask you to open our eyes that the spirit would come so that we could see Jesus again this morning, even as we talk about what was happening in the fourth century in your church. So help us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and look again at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, and hear the word of the gracious and loving and kind and generous God that we serve. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, Why would we spend two more weeks on this verse? Why hover over the phrase, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature? Why do that for two more sermons? Because I think we've already been here for two weeks, right? Maybe three, I lost track. Well, here's why. Because it's good for us to learn and to know how the early church wrestled with the identity of Jesus. And it's good for us to know church history, to know our history. It's good for us to know how our brothers and sisters in Christ in the fourth century wrestled with and defended the doctrine of who Jesus Christ is. And even though this is a different kind of sermon, we will still see how the law exposes us as sinners because we will be confronted with the first commandment which says that we should have no other God before God and we shouldn't make any image of him. So right off the bat, we're exposed and we will be throughout this sermon as people who come up with differing ideas about God all the time. But we will also see how the gospel delivers us and we will do all of that by looking at church history And what we'll see is that good theology happens in community, in the church community. But good theology just doesn't happen in this church community today, in this local church body here at Grace. Good theology happens in the community of church history. 
We hold to the beliefs and the traditions that were passed down to us from the apostles and prophets, Ephesians 2.20, and then what they pass on down to the early church. We are literally, as the saying goes, we are standing on the shoulders of giants. The problem, though, is that Christians today, many Christians, have chronological snobbery. Many churches don't value tradition. Many churches don't value church history, and that's why we need to be reminded this morning that rescuing grace shows up in the body of Christ. God rescues us with the zeal and the passion of his eternal, redemptive love that we've talked about over the last few weeks The love that shines forth in Jesus Christ, who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So God rescues us in and through and by his son, Jesus. We need rescue. We need rescue from sin, but we also need rescue from ourselves. And we need to be rescued from our own chronological snobbery where we think that because we're further down the line, then we have the correct interpretation of scripture. You know, we have smartphones and therefore we think we're smarter than people in the fourth century. That's chronological snobbery. We need to be rescued from our own thinking that we, all by ourselves, can be trusted with scripture. The hard truth that we must hear is that we can't be trusted with Scripture all by ourselves. We simply cannot be trusted with the Scriptures by ourselves. We need outside help. We need the Spirit of God. As John Owen famously said, without the Holy Spirit, we may as well burn our Bibles. What John Owen is saying is that apart from the Holy Spirit, we would never be able to understand God's word. We are desperately dependent upon the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. Desperately dependent upon him in order to accurately understand the Bible. And without him, we might as well burn our Bibles because they will do us no good. We are that desperate. But we are also desperate and dependent on church history, the church community that has come before us. We are dependent on the tradition that has been passed down from the apostles and prophets in God's word, but also what they passed on down to the early church and then what was passed down through church history. One of my church history professors, Dr. Jeff Bingham, bless him, I love this man. He's had a profound impact upon my life. He said this, You cannot trust me to be a gentleman with scripture on a date by myself, unobserved and unmonitored. You must send a chaperone, tradition. I don't want to date tradition, but scripture. I'm interested in having a relationship with scripture, but in order for it to be fruitful, I have to bring in tradition. Tradition helps me stay in the straight and narrow. We need a chaperone when we read scripture. We need tradition. We need the community of God where the spirit of God is. We need the traditions that have been passed down to us in the creeds and the councils of church history. Otherwise, we will come up with some crazy ideas about God. 
And this is exactly what happens when Christians isolate themselves from other believers, when they pull away from the church community. You've seen this before. When someone pulls away from the church community, their understanding of God and his word typically gets skewed, doesn't it? We've all seen this with people who leave the church, they're not involved in a local church family, and what happens? They begin thinking differently. They start painting God the way that they want him to be, molding him into what they want him to be, making scripture say what they want it to say. We've all seen this, right? They start hallucinating and imagining God to be someone that he is not. And it doesn't just affect individual Christians. Groups of Christians can pull away from the universal body of Christ and start reimagining God and repainting God. I knew two guys in college that were reading Revelation 11 together in a smaller community, and they said, I think we're the witnesses, the two witnesses of Revelation 11. And I said, I don't think you are. We think we are. I don't think you are. You need to be in the church community reading scripture together so that pastors and elders over you can say, you're not the two witnesses of Revelation 11, okay? Well, people begin to hallucinate, start believing things that are not true, things that are contrary to scripture. We've all seen this, right? And because this is true, God intervenes through his body, the church. How does rescuing grace show up in our lives? Rescuing grace shows up in our lives through the body or in the body of Christ. Now here's what I mean. One, grace comes to us in a person, Jesus Christ. Grace is a person, Jesus. God's rescuing grace comes to us in the person of Jesus, in the God-man. Grace took on human flesh in the person of Jesus, so grace showed up in a body, in a human body. Grace shows up in the body of Christ, a human body with fingernails and armpits and legs and earlobes and a spleen. God's rescuing grace came in a person, in a human body, Jesus Christ. But God's rescuing grace also shows up in the body of Christ, meaning the church, the people of God, the community of God. God sends his rescuing grace to us, and he often does it in and through other people. God in his grace and in his mercy and in his kindness and in his love has placed us in his body, the church, to rescue us when we drift And God often uses other people in the body of Christ to rescue us from our wacky ideas about God. As we saw two weeks ago, there are still unevangelized dark continents inside the hearts of every single one of us. There are still places in our hearts where we need the radiance of the glory of God to shine. There are places in our hearts where we still need the gospel. In fact, we will always need the gospel as long as we live. And God, in his rescuing grace, sends other people to help us with this. God places us in the body of Christ so that others can help rescue us from our wacky ideas about God. And this is exactly what was happening to the audience of the book of Hebrews. They were painting a picture of the gospel 
that was not accurate. They were painting a picture of Jesus that was not accurate. They were having conversations with one another in their small groups and in their Sunday school classes, and they began doubting the good news of the gospel. They were talking about returning to the old covenant. They were trying to repaint the gospel. They wanted more law and less grace. They were pulling away from the church universal, pulling away from what the apostles and prophets had said about Jesus. And this is one of the reasons why the preacher of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 10.25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. They were being tempted to pull away from church fellowship, to pull away from the community of church history, to pull away from what the apostles and prophets had revealed about Jesus in God's word. So they're starting to skip church fellowship and to skip worship where they would have been encouraged with the wonderful news of the gospel. And so they were beginning to hallucinate and to imagine Jesus and to see him apart from what was revealed in God's word. And that's why the preacher of Hebrews is writing to them. And he's really preaching to them. And he's doing so because he wants to rescue them from their wacky ideas about Jesus and the gospel. This, of course, is nothing new. Ever since the Garden of Eden, humanity has been trying to repaint God apart from his word and apart from how he has revealed himself. And we all do this. We all want God to play by our rules. We all want God to be who we want him to be. We all in some way shape and mold God contrary and breaking the first commandment into something that we want him to be. And so at all, at all of us at some point in our lives come up with wacky ideas about God. You can file that under exposed by the law, exposed by the first commandment. This is where God's law exposes us. God's law exposes us as master craftsmen who can come up with and create many idols. We are master artists who can wield a mean paintbrush at times and come up with a new picture of God, a wacky idea about God. Ralph Davis said, do we worship our conceptions of God or God? God is free to be who he is Or do I make him my prisoner, subject to what I think he should be? A Christian must keep asking himself, am I worshiping the God of the Bible or only God as I think of him? That is the question that we must keep asking ourselves. Am I worshiping the God of the Bible or only God as I think of him? And this is exactly the question that the audience of the book of Hebrews needed to ask because this is exactly what the audience of the book of Hebrews was struggling with. They were a predominantly Jewish Christian congregation who were being tempted to return to their Old Testament roots to turn to the old covenant way of worshiping God. They wanted to return to the law in order to be justified. And by doing this, they were trying to make God play by their rules. They were not content to believe the outrageously good news of the gospel that God justifies people not on the things they do for God, but on what Jesus has done for them. They were trying to earn God's love through their obedience to the law. They wanted more law and less grace. 
They wanted to earn their righteousness instead of receiving it as a free gift. They just couldn't believe that God really loves sinners and justifies them based on nothing they do, but all on what Jesus Christ has done. They were in danger of beginning to worship God as they imagined him. And so they wanted to return to the old covenant. They wanted to throw out the gospel and return to the law as a means of earning righteousness in order to earn God's favor. And that's why the preacher of Hebrews paints this picture of Jesus, the God-man, as the radiance of God's glory at the very beginning of his letter. And that's why the author of the book of Hebrews keeps redirecting their gaze back to Jesus time and time again throughout this letter. And that's why Martin Luther said this, Here I must take counsel of the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel, which teacheth me not what I ought to do, for that is the proper office of the law, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me, to wit that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel willeth me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well. We should know the gospel well. Teach it to others and beat it into their heads continually. That's all I try to do with my preaching is beat you and I over the head with the gospel each week. The audience of the book of Hebrews needed someone to beat the gospel into their heads. And that's why they needed someone outside of their local circle, someone inside the church community to challenge their understanding of Jesus, to hit them upside the head with the good news of the gospel. And that's exactly what the preacher of Hebrews does. He paints this glorious picture of who Jesus Christ is, the radiant, glorious, eternal Son of God. Look again at Hebrews Chapter 1, verse 3, let's read it again. You should have it memorized by now. Shame on you if you don't. Just kidding. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, the last few weeks, we unpacked what it means that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. We saw that the God we enjoy is not, in essence, a lawgiver, but a lover. That what God the Father was doing in eternity past was loving his son Jesus in and through the Spirit. And what Jesus Christ was doing in eternity past was loving his Father in and through the Spirit. Before they ever created anything, before God was ever a ruler, we saw what was he doing? He was loving. So that God, in his essence fundamentally and foundationally is a God of love. He is not in essence a lawgiver. He is a lover. And today we'll unpack a little bit more about what it means that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature as we look at church history. What does it mean that Jesus is the exact imprint of God the Father's nature and does it really matter? Does Christology matter? Does it matter what we believe about Jesus? And what is the church's role in all of this? What role does church history, what roles do the creeds and the councils and even the confessions and the catechisms that we have, what role do they play in helping us to understand who Jesus Christ is? 
And what role does the local church and its pastors and elders play in helping us to understand Jesus? We're gonna answer those questions today and then next week as well. Again, to mention Jeff Bingham, my church history professor and one of my heroes, he said this, this is after all what church leaders do. They explain to their congregations acceptable parameters within which they are to understand and interpret the Bible. They also point out unacceptable interpretations. Good theology doesn't just happen. Church leaders who care for their congregations don't allow unacceptable thinking about the Trinity to go unchecked. Church leaders must first be the church's theologians. Do the councils answer all of our questions about the Trinity? No, but they do give us boundaries within which we find acceptable interpretations of the scriptures about the Trinity. We may not have all the answers, but we know things we should say and believe, and we know views we shouldn't hold. So listen, Grace, your pastors and your elders here at Grace labor to explain acceptable parameters within which you are to understand the Bible. And the creeds and the councils of church history give us boundaries in which we can find acceptable interpretations of the scriptures about Jesus. The creeds and the councils, we'll look at the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed that came out of it next week. The creeds and the councils of church history history give us these parameters and they draw circles around what we can and can't believe about God and that's what we're going to do today. I hope to explain even more by looking at church history what it means that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. I hope to draw circles around this verse and tell you what the acceptable parameters are for what we can and can't believe about Jesus And to do that, we need to go back in time. We need to hop in a time machine and see what happened in church history as the early church labored to defend the truth about Jesus. So let's go back in time to about 323 AD to a Bible church in Alexandria, Egypt. The pastor's name is Arius. I mentioned him several weeks ago. Arius is a pastor in Alexandria and he's preaching from the Bible and he's doing a series on the book of Proverbs. And when he comes to Proverbs chapter eight, he is teaching on wisdom. And Arius reads this in Proverbs 8.22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Now here's what Proverbs 8.22 is saying. It's saying that with wisdom, God created the world, that God possessed wisdom when he created the world. But the Hebrew word here for possess, there are two Hebrew roots, and one can mean to possess, and the other one can mean to create. So when Arius was preaching through the book of Proverbs, he took the translation of, this, of the second Hebrew word, create. And so he read Proverbs 8.22 as the Lord created me at the beginning of his work. Arius did not teach that God possessed wisdom as he created the world. Arius took the word to mean that God created wisdom as the very first thing that God created. And as Arius is working on his sermon in Proverbs 8.22, the lights go off in his head and he says to himself, there's another place in the New Testament that mentions wisdom. And so Arius turns to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 24 and 30, which say this, Christ, the power of God and the 
wisdom of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. And so as Arius puts these verses together, Proverbs 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he comes to the conclusion that, one, since Christ is the wisdom of God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, and since, according to his interpretation, wisdom was the first thing that God created, then Arius thinks that Jesus must have been the very first thing that God created. Arius believed that since Jesus is the wisdom of God, and since wisdom was the first thing that God created, then Jesus was the first thing that God created. Instead of seeing Proverbs 8.22 as saying that it was through wisdom that God created the world, Arius took it to be that God created wisdom before he ever created anything else. And since Jesus is the wisdom of God, according to 1 Corinthians 1, then according to Arius, Jesus was the very first thing that God created. And so Arius and his followers believe that Jesus was not eternally existent with God the Father. They believe that God actually made Jesus. Arius believed that Jesus was the first creature ever made by God. Arius believed that the Son of God, Jesus, was made by God before God ever created those weird-looking creatures that we looked at last week in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4. That Jesus was the first one he created. Now, that's crazy, huh? I hope you think that's crazy, because it is crazy. And guess where Arius came up with his idea? Where did Arius get this idea? From the Bible. You see, we must be very careful because we can make the Bible sing any song we want it to. People use the Bible to justify all kinds of beliefs and behavior because you can make the Bible sing any song you want to. Arius used the Bible, he used God's word to claim that Jesus did not exist in eternity past. He used the Bible to claim that Jesus was not loved by his father in eternity past, but that God created Jesus as the very first act of creation. But understand this about Arius in the time in which he lived. Arius was not some small town unknown preacher. Arius was extremely popular in his day. He was a very popular Bible teacher. He was a great communicator. Arius was preaching expositional sermons. His books were popular. Arius even managed to turn his beliefs about Jesus into some catchy worship songs. Did you know that? He was like the very first Chris Tomlin, just cranking out catchy worship song after catchy worship song, but his lyrics were terrible. His songs were catchy. The melodies were catchy, but his lyrics were terrible because the theology in his worship songs denied the eternality of Jesus, the Son of God. Arius was very popular. His books would have been all over every Christian bookstore. People were reading his books and lapping up his theology like thirsty dogs. So there's a lesson here for us. Just because you're preaching from the Bible, and just because you're extremely popular, and just because your church is growing, and just because the numbers of members keeps escalating, it doesn't mean you're preaching the truth. It doesn't mean you're preaching the gospel. And to prove this from history, just go back in time to the streets of Berlin in the 1930s and see thousands upon thousands of people flock to see and to hear 
Adolf Hitler, one of the most engaging and charismatic speakers that this world has ever known. Just because you're popular and just because crowds show up does not mean that you're preaching the truth. And just because Arius preached from the Bible, and just because Arius pastored a mega church, and just because he wrote very catchy worship songs that every church in his time were singing, that did not mean that he was a good theologian. To be sure, Arius was a monotheist. He believed in one God, but Arius only believed in one God. Arius was not Trinitarian. He did not believe that there was one God eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Arius only believed in one God, God the Father. And then he would only admit that God became a father after he created Jesus. Arius believed in one God who in his mind and in his thinking was fundamentally and foundationally creator first. He believed that God was first the creator before he was ever a father. So Arius believed that Jesus was created by the father. We talked about this several weeks ago. He believed that Jesus was created by God and then God became the father Arius actually believed that there was a time when Jesus Christ did not exist. Here's how he said it. There was a time when the Son, Jesus, did not exist. The Son had a beginning, but God is without a beginning. Arius denied the eternality of Jesus. Arius believed that Jesus did not exist in eternity past with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Arius believed that God the Father actually created or made or beget Jesus the Son He believed that God did not become a father until he created Jesus. And where did Arius get his idea? The Bible. Listen, Grace, be very careful what teachers, be very careful what preachers, be very careful what books you read, what worship songs you listen to. Just because they use the Bible does not mean that it is true. Remember, you can make the Bible sing any song you want to. And so this division was sweeping throughout Constantine's empire because Arius was becoming very popular. He was very popular. Some people in churches were on board with Arius and others weren't. And the church leaders of the day approached Arius and they called him out on his faulty views of Jesus. Now we'll look more at this next week and the person who really went to task, Athanasius, you should know his name. You should be grateful for what he did for the church. We'll talk about that next week. But the church called Arius out in his thinking. Now why did they expose his faulty, his wacky ideas about God? They did this because rescuing grace shows up in the body of Christ. See, we all need daily rescue from our misconceptions about God and the gospel. How many of you have ever thought to yourself, I've just blown it again. There's no way God could love and forgive me. Anybody? See, we daily need rescue from our thinking about who God is. I wake up every morning and my default mode is to think, you can't be this good, God. You can't be this loving. Don't you know my sin? We all need daily rescue from what we think about God. And we need the church body to come in and rescue us when we drift. 
And Arius needed rescue too. Arius needed to be rescued from his belief that Jesus was the first being created by God. And God sent people to Arius to rescue him from his faulty understanding of God. But Arius refused to listen. We'll talk more about it next week. And so the universal church confronted Arius because they did not believe his teachings. In fact, there is a very popular uh, Bible teacher who several years ago came out and said, I finally believe that the son, Jesus as a role, the son of God, that that's who he was in eternity past and isn't something that he adopted once he was born on the earth. You can look that person up, but he's a famous preacher. He, he's, he, was, he wasn't in error. He was in error. He wasn't preaching heresy, but he preaches in LA at a very big church. You can look that up if you want to or ask me later. But this person came out and said, I was wrong in saying that Jesus did not have the title or role, the son of God in eternity past. And the reason he came forward and corrected his theology is because church, the church body, Christians were writing and saying, you can't say that. And so this man humbled himself and said, I no longer believe that. His name is John MacArthur. You can look it up on his website. He wasn't in error. He wasn't preaching heresy. He was just in error about his understanding of Jesus being the son of God. He believed that he existed all the way back into eternity past. He just thought the role or the title son of God became his once he was born. You can check it out on the Grace to You website. I'm not making that up and I'm not trying to pick a fight with him. He writes books about people who pick fights with him. (laughs) I, I love the man. I love the man. I do. I just want to explain to you that even in recent years, the church body has had to rally around people and say, you need to, you need to change your, your thinking there. It's a little bit off. Rescuing grace came to John MacArthur because people wrote to him and said, you can't say that. That's not quite right. And he humbly went back to his study and said, you're right. And it's on his website today. You have to admire a man for that. All right, that wasn't even in the notes. I wasn't even going to say that, so I probably butchered it. Jesus did not become the son in, relation to, in relationship to his father at his birth in incarnation, contrary to what Arius was teaching. Jesus was always the son. For all of eternity past, Jesus was the eternal son of God being loved by his father, as we have seen over the last few weeks. But Arius denied that. And so the church rallied together to correct him, and their concerted efforts prove that rescuing grace shows up in the body of Christ. This is exactly the point that Paul is making in Ephesians 4 when he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he gave, that's God's grace, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. God's grace comes to us in the form of others in the church community to rescue us from our repaintings of God and our wacky ideas about him. God's grace is a person, Jesus Christ, and it comes to us in persons, the body of Christ. Grace came in the body of Christ, Jesus, the God-man, and grace comes to us in the body of Christ, the church. 
Grace came in the flesh and blood of Christ and it comes to us in the flesh and blood of others. Or as Puritan Richard Sibbs said, godly friends are walking sermons. Godly friends are walking sermons who come alongside you to rescue you. Sometimes, a lot of times, God rescues us through others. And this is why we need the church. This is why we need community because we cannot be trusted to be alone. We need chaperones, scripture, the creeds, the councils, tradition, pastors, elders, other believers, small groups, Sunday school classes. This is why we do theology in community. This is why we read the Bible together. This is why we need each other because Christians can come up with some very wacky things about God on their own. And good theology happens not just in our community today, but in the community of church history. We hold to the beliefs and the traditions that were passed down from the apostles and prophets in God's word to the early church. The problem, as I said before, is that many Christians today have chronological snobbery. We just don't value tradition. We just don't value history. And this is why we need the creeds and councils of church history, because they keep us on the straight and narrow The creeds and councils draw circles around what we can and can't believe about God. And this is why we need the church. This is why we need the church community. This is why we need church history. This is why we need to read scripture with one another and with the community of church history. Because we can make the Bible sing any song we want to. We cannot be trusted alone with the Bible. We'll come up with wacky ideas about Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that you can't read the Bible by yourself. You need to read the Bible by yourself. Read the Bible by yourself. Please hear me say that again. Read your Bible. Have your devotions. But don't just do it alone. Don't just read the Bible by yourself. You have to read the Bible in community. The community of this local church and the community of church history. Those are the chaperones that we need when it comes to handling God's word. And if we don't have those chaperones, we will come up with wacky ideas about God and his word. That's why we need each other. That's why we need the creeds and councils that we'll look at more next week. That's why we need church history. And that's why God gave us these. He gave us each other and all of these resources in order to rescue us from our improper views of God. What mercy, what grace, what kindness, what love. God in his grace gave us Jesus for us and for our salvation. And he gave us each other and those in church history to keep us on the straight and narrow when it comes to understanding who he is. May you recognize how desperately you need the spirit of God today. And may you recognize how desperately you need the church, his bride. And may you give thanks that God sends people across your path all the time to rescue you from you and to rescue you from your wacky idea about God, whatever that may be. Look around, Grace. The people gathered here today, the body of Christ, are God's gift to you. We may not be the best looking group, but look around. 
God in his grace has given you, the people that are gathered here, he loves you so much that he did not leave you alone. He loves you so much that he gave you people to help you understand him and to understand his word. And he gave you his spirit. He gave you his word. He gave you the community to be a part of so that you could experience daily rescue. What grace, what love. And most of all, he gave you Jesus, the relentless redeemer, the rescuing redeemer who will not leave you alone. He loves you too much to leave you alone. A final quote by Paul Tripp. There is not a day when every member of the body of Christ does not need to be taught, helped to identify those remaining artifacts of an ungospelized worldview. There is also not a day when we don't need to be admonished, confronted with the fact that we still look into the world's carnival mirrors and carry around distorted opinions of who we are. We need a protective circle of grace-motivated admonishers. Every day there is a war fought for the control of your heart, but your jealous Savior, with the zeal of gorgeous redemptive love, will not share your heart. He will not rest until your heart is ruled by him and him alone. The good news of the gospel that I want to leave you with today is that your jealous Savior, with the zeal of gorgeous, redemptive love, he will not share your heart. With the zeal of gorgeous, redemptive love, he will not let you go. He will rescue you because he loves, because he is the radiance of God's glorious, eternal love, and because he is the exact imprint of God's nature, love. Jesus is love, and he loves you and will not let you go. Let's pray. Father, how merciful and gracious you are that you won't let us go when we drift from you all the time. You're so kind and so loving and so generous that you keep wooing us back to you, back to our first love. How merciful you are in not giving us what we deserve. How gracious you are in giving us what we don't deserve, in giving us your son, Jesus, and your spirit, and your word, and this local church, clear evidence of your love. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.